All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's uh, Felix or Expresso Write-In Podcast. Um, you know, if you're new, welcome. This is a show where basically we choose a different guest every weekend, and they choose their favorite coffee shop um, here in, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, so we have a nice crowd going on today, and I'd like to introduce you, John and Chris. They're the co-founders, owners of Flow Wheels, um, based out of Las Vegas. Hey, what's going Thanks on? Thanks for you guys for coming on, man. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This is very cool. Um, not sure if you guys listened to any of the past po- you know, podcasts, but what we like to do is basically find out, discover what gets everyone going, you know? Um, I know you guys started back like in 2009 or something, right, with your company? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's there has to be some sort of like intrinsic, you know, fuel source. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, whatever motivates you. Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of like what we want to find out and, and, and dig deep into that. We'll get to your company. We'll get into sure. the startup. We'll get into the product. But I'd love to find out how did it all begin, okay. you know, like from where you guys are from. Uh, we'll start off there. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we were, so we're identical twin brothers. We were born and raised in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada. Um, oh, wow. From a young age, I think we both knew we wanted to live in a bigger city, and when we were in university, we were both mechanical engineers. We, uh, we were kind of tired of just living the uh, small-town life, so we, we one summer kind of put our finger on a map, and Las Vegas was an option, and we knew one guy here, and we came down for the summer and kind of fell in love with the area. Okay. Over the next couple years, so we would go come down for the summers and then go back to university and for the, the year. Uh, what were we, you guys studying? Uh, mechanical engineering. Okay. Yep. So we uh, we would go down. We came down to Las Vegas for our first summer. Then we lived in Hollywood for a summer. Then we came back to Las Vegas. We lived in Vancouver for a while. And that was when we were graduating. And we got mechanical engineering jobs here in Las Vegas. And then uh, we came down permanently. That was 10 years ago. We worked as mechanical engineers for six years. Uh, started one business that did not work. And then um, we were kind of starting flow on the way out of our last job, and we've been running that full time for what four, four almost five years now. Okay. So. Okay. Uh, so what 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 got you like even interested in cycling? Like, where did that come from? Yeah. So I was a triathlete. I got into triathlon. I was an athlete my whole life, and when I graduated, I was just going to the gym, going to the gym, and going to the gym, and I was like, okay, I'm in shape, but how in shape am I? You know, and I wanted to. I missed the competition side of it, so I just. Google. Tri- I was reading Men's Health one day, and they talked about triathlon, and I thought, oh, I'd love to do that, but Ironmans are way too long. So I started researching triathlon, and there were shorter options. So I thought, well, I could probably do a sprint, and then a sprint leads to an Olympic, and you know that pattern. Um, so I, I started the sport, and I really fell in love with it, and then I started looking at the gear, and I, I as a mechanical engineer, I wanted the bikes and the wheels, and um, at the time, there were two options of wheels there were the guy you know like zip and head and envy those guys who spend a ton of money doing research and development they go through the standard distribution network so you go uh owner distributor retailer and then the end user so every time that product changes hand the price goes up and up and up and then the r&d costs that go into those wheels i mean at the time zip was spending i think up to half a million dollars to develop a single wheel you're paying on average between two and four thousand dollars for a set of wheels the other option at the time was um, guys were going overseas and buying an open source wheel, and okay. then that didn't infringe on any patents. At the time, Zip and Head co-owned a patent that eliminated people from developing in a certain shape range. So the only other option was to use these open source wheels. Guys would go overseas. You're a legend, Tim. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> they would put um, their sticker on the wheel, basically and then they would sell it direct to the consumer. So selling it direct to the consumer knocked out a couple lines of markup, and they were selling them usually for about 1,100 to 1,500 bucks. So when I bought wheels, I bought the higher end version, and I remember getting them and just looking at them and thinking, there's no way that this has to cost that much. So we started doing some research and we found that the patent was actually expiring right around that time. So I went to my brother and I asked him what he thought my wheels cost and he just about fell over when I told him. And uh, I said, do you think we can do the same or similar thing and do it in an affordable way? And he said, yeah. So that started this 
So John, were you were you also like in, into endurance sports and no. athlete and stuff? I, like what? I I asked Chris what all the parts of the wheel were called. I didn't know. <laughs> I uh, I was not. I knew he was in it. And what, what, were you, what were you into? Like in, in, in you know? I was working. If you weren't out, studying, like what were you into? I was working out. I mean, I would go to the gym. I would do. I was always active. Um, we've skied our whole lives, so that sort of stuff. But I, I really wasn't into it at that time, and uh, I knew he was. And, I like the idea of starting a business. So yeah. Said, yeah, at the time, it. it was a problem in the industry. And what we did really was combine the best of both worlds. We had the mechanical engineering background and said, well, why don't we design our own products? And because the patent's expired now. Right. And then go to these factories that make these open source products, see if we can convince them to make our products, and yeah. then import them and sell them directly so, to consumers. So, so, I mean, you know, let me know if I get this wrong, but it seems to me like... You identified a personal pain point. Yes. And then you also took inventory of what's going on in, in that industry, in that space. And you also, you know, just started making connections and saying, hey, there's a, there's a lot of people who also have these pain points. Right. Exactly. Right. So, and and it's for me, like, I, I was going to all these races. And you'd look at the, the rack in your local triathlon. And if you go to the Kona or something, it's different. But at your typical local triathlon... Maybe 10 or 15% of people had high end race wheels. And that's simply that's because, and that's probably a high percentage. It's because that's the only people that can afford them or that choose to afford them, you know? And I kept thinking, well, we're not, I don't really want to take that business because there's always going to be the guy who drives a Lamborghini because the Mustang's not good enough, right? Or, or whatever. But I thought, why don't we create a product that doesn't take business away from them but just expands the market share? down to more people who can where you know at the our original wheel sets were 898 a set so that opens up the possibility to a lot more people than a $3000 wheel set does right so you're 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 identifying this pain point you you take you know you take the industry you look at it you're like oh you know there's there's a gap here right well how old are you guys at, at that point uh 28 28, 28, 28 right so, yeah. so you went you went back like i don't know um, what did you tell your friends, your family and, 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 and at that point? You know, were you getting support from them when you told them, hey, we want yeah. to do this? You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, did, yeah. did, did it come out of nowhere? Like, were people kind of expecting you to, to do this type of stuff? Well, like, I don't, how did that, how did to that be honest, be? I don't think I ever expected myself that I'd start a wheel company. Like, you yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> it just kind of was one of those things. Like, you see a problem, you identify it, and you say, does it make sense to fix it? So, our, I mean, our parents have always been very supportive of us 100% on anything that we do. But we've done a lot of, had a lot of ideas and, and done a lot of things in our lives. And I think they heard it and like, okay, cycling wheels, I don't quite understand. But I guess when you start something, you kind of have this, this idea, this vision of what you're doing. And I think that's, once it started to become a clearer picture for everyone else, and they, they, you know, they understood what, what happened. So, so traditionally, when, when people... Um, you know, go on on a new venture. I guess lately, you know, like everyone calls themselves a startup, right? It's yeah, a, it's a term, but it's just a new business, right? Right, 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 right. And, and a lot of times, it's just an like an MVP, which is just you're testing out your business. Yeah, testing out the, the the offering or the product value, yep. right? So, and in that in that period of your company, um, what were some of your challenges? Like, what, what were like, you know, like. <clears throat> I don't know, like what kept you up at night? Like what stressed you out? Because everyone sees Going the photos. Broke. Everyone sees everyone sees the Instagram, right? Yeah. The Snapchats, the great moments, the smiles, yeah. Yeah. right? But well, no no one sees the sweat. Right? Well, we I actually, think we, we differ. actually have yeah. a very public startup. So okay. the first business that we started that did not work. It was like we had it under lock and key until we released it and then we released it and nothing happened. What was that what was that about? It was this so we were we had like a charity slash business thing going on that we we created digital copies of paintings that were created by kids with disabilities. So every time we sold them, we gave 50% to the charity and then some of the money went into a sweepstakes program. We thought we were, it was this cool thing, but it just it didn't work. And the biggest reason it didn't work was because we had no idea how to market. We were two engineers and had zero marketing experience. So when we stopped that, we looked at each other and said... What, what, what do we screw up on? We knew we were going to start a business again. That wasn't the question. It was just, what do we screw up on? And marketing was the thing that we had no idea about. It, and we just had no clue. So we took a long time to really sit down and, and, I mean, we read everything we could on marketing. There was a lot of stuff at the time that was talking about the shift of marketing with the internet. So 
you see a lot of it today, but back in 2010, 2009, when we first started this, this stuff was kind of new. So our startup process was very public. So we used a lot of crowdsourcing. We involved people. We, we took them along the journey. If you go to our the About Us page on our website right now, we've kept a month-by-month history of everything that's happened. Yeah, I saw that. I think that's yeah. fascinating. so <laughs> awesome. Very but cool. one of the Very things cool. that we did is we we don't just take pictures of the good stuff. I don't think Instagram was around when we started. No, I don't even think Instagram start, was so, there yet. Yeah. We actually talk about all the problems. Like okay. There was a number of issues that we had. We've had boats crash off the coast of Hong Kong. We had a factory. We had a factory that we had picked first. We were supposed to actually start sales in February of 2011. And about 30 days before that sale, the factory said, we don't know what we're doing. We're waiting for you to come over and teach us how to make wheels. And that, this has been a, a several month process. And this call was from where? The factory that was supposed to make our product. Where, where, was, where were they located? They were in China. Yeah, so, yeah. We, so did you get yeah. on a plane? Like, wow. No, we, no. we said, we well, we did, <laughs> wow, that's insane. we did get on a plane, but what we did is we learned that Taiwan, anything carbon fiber manufactured, is Taiwan is the place to be. Okay. Um, so he actually, Chris, we had no money at the time, so he was the only guy that went. He jumped on a plane. I knew went, more about wheels because John still didn't know the yeah. parts. <laughs> <laughs> so he jumped on a plane and he went to Taiwan, and we went through a number of factories over there, and there was a clear winner. And then it was a discussion of how do we convince these people to give us a shot. I mean, I mean, have you guys ever worked with, uh, like, on, on that part of the supply chain, like, with manufacturers? I mean, no. how did you communicate with them? Like, how was that? We, so what, we, we got, there's some of them, there, there are salespeople in Taiwan, and actually the, the main guy at the, at the factory does speak pretty good English. He spent okay. some time in, in America. So there's, there's, most, most of the factories over there, if they're good, not, I'm not saying that good factories require somebody to speak English, but they actually have a very good English understanding for the most part. So it was just a, it was just a question of can we convince these guys to make it? Because Asian business is much different than American business. We we learned that the hard way. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just. It's just culturally different. Two, two completely different cultures. So in America, you, you basically say, can you make this? Yes, we can make this. How much does it cost? I want to buy this many, and they're made. You know, I mean, there's some differences, but in, in Taiwan and some of the, the different Asian cultures, it's there's a lot of pride that's involved in it. So if you come over and say, can you make this? Yes, will you make it? I don't know, maybe. So it's, it, it becomes... Do I like you? I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's, they like it's to different. see the future. The future. It's, it's much more future-based. So apparently he did some sweet talking, and, <laughs> and we convinced this factory to give us a shot. And um, it's it was it was great. We I think we're now the one of the biggest buyers from this factory from a company perspective, just because our price is lower, so we do a higher amount of volume. So um, it worked out, you know, good for both of us. But yeah, so our like I say, our our whole history, our whole process of of getting the story out was everything good and everything bad. And I think what people have done is they look at it and they go, oh, this is just two guys that are really. It's real. It's real. It's real. It's real. Yeah, it's authentic. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know the the saying, "Never do business with family." Right? <laughs> um, how hot? Yeah, I mean, you. I don't know you guys too well. I've met you met you a couple times, and but you guys, I you know, I can see the I can see the chemistry. I can see the. Uh, you know the connection that you two have. Well, right? yeah, we've been sharing space so, since the womb, right? So yeah, like, we figured yeah. out how to handle so, but, it. I guess. But, but but yeah. So like, I mean, is it is there a secret? You know that that I, I think being. I mean, a, I think it's awesome that the type of partnership you guys have. You know, I think in terms of business. yeah. I think being a twin is quite unique. And to be honest with you, I can't think of starting a business without like with anybody else but him. Like if some another partner came in, like our relate I mean like we've been brothers for thirty four years and we actually we fill each other's pluses and minuses. So like I know what he's good at, he knows what I'm good at. If I had another partner come into a business, I'd be like, I I don't know I'd probably talk to him like I don't know how to handle this guy. Uh, we we would you know you can obviously sort that out. But I think it there's with him and I there's just an ultimate level of trust and respect and we just I mean if he says he's gonna do something it's gonna get done and if it didn't get done then something happened, you know like there's that, a reason. There's a reason. So um 
it's just blind trust, and I think that's a very comfortable place to be to start a business. You know? Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's a difficult thing to find. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> that, you know, You're I, a business I, owner. You understand that. Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 I'm on that 100. percent You know, and that trust and just no, not having to talk about it. Yeah. You just know it exists. Exactly. And you know it's strong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's very important. It's vital. Vital to, yeah. to a business. And when you put literally everything you have on the line. Oh yeah, and we've done that multiple times. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, very cool, yeah. very cool. Yeah, I was reading in in, uh, in, in your story too, in the, in the blogs about your company. There was one thing that um, I found really, really interesting, and and I'd love to get a little more insight into it. Um, it was it was in the phase of when you were you were trying to figure out, trying to decide whether you were going to have your own warehouse or if you were going to um, basically you know subcontract that part of the business. Yeah. Um, and then also uh, something that was adjacent to that decision, I think you guys were making, was also um, I think your on on how you were how you're going to track. Um, part of the, the the inventory or something like this. Okay. Yes. Uh, oh no, no. I'm sorry. The, the, your fulfillment process. Yes. Yes. How, how you made that more efficient. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to. Think. Yeah. So what? How was you know? How was that all like? How did that come about? So it it, it was funny. It, we when we first started the business, we thought that we would actually build all. You go through phases, right? Yeah, so. Yeah. I remember saying, well, we'll just have the factory ship the hubs and the spokes and the rims over, and we'll build them as people order them. And if we sell 100 our first year, we'll be doing good. Yeah, and, and and if, first year. if we yeah. sell 100 yeah. wheels our first year, we'll do good. So we had the factory ship over some stuff for a test, and I'd never built a wheel, but I'm like, oh, it can't be that bad. Well, the first wheel took me three hours to build. <laughs> and after I built our first four wheels, I said, I'm never doing this again yeah, for as long as I live, right? right. Yeah. So I said, you know, even if... I could see this being a bottleneck. So um, the first step was we had the fact we talked our factory to building wheels, and these guys have been doing this. They're trained. I mean, they're phenomenal at what they do. So that was a big thing. And then is so we said if we sell 100 wheels our first year, that'll be a success. So we had done this this backlog, and we told the story as we were going, and we had problems. And we had by the time we launched our first sale. We had, I think it was close to three or 4,000 people on a list ready to, who were at least interested. Right, right. So we kind of did this sales cycle and we, we gave people information and we had a countdown timer on our website and uh, we opened the sale and within a second our site crashed and we're like, well, we didn't expect that, right? So we got the server up and then in about 30 or 45 minutes, somewhere in that time frame, we sold 800 cycling wheels. So we were like, oh, okay. So we we ordered all the cycling wheels over, and we thought, well, it can't take that long to ship 800 wheels, right? It's got to be a pretty quick process. Well, that was very wrong. We knew nothing about, um, you know, assembly line type things. So we would, at the time, we had a two-bedroom condo. And no storage space. I don't know if you've ever tried to fit 800 cycling wheels in a two-bedroom condo, but it oh, doesn't man. go very well. So we literally had... Your mattress made out of, out of Yeah, I wheels. mean, every room was full. We had, t- like, tunnels, basically, to get from rooms to the kitchen. And then we started processing wheels by hand. And, and I think the first day we did 50, you know, because... And it is, like, all our process, we put custom stickers on. So we had the custom stickers. We did an inspection of all the product. We, just organizing 800 shipping labels and 800 orders. And we used to hand sign all the... Especially the first orders, right? Yeah. Your first customers. You want to give them, like, the best experience, Exactly. So So it's, like, even more detailed. You know, it took us, like, two weeks to ship these wheels. And we thought, okay, we'll get better. And we did get better. You know, we got to the point where we, I think our biggest day ever was 300 wheels. 328. 328. We processed 328 one day, you know. But what was happening is we, we kept growing and growing and growing. And we got to the point where we were shipping six to 800 cycling wheels over every six weeks. And it would take probably a week to get ready for a sale. So you're not marketing, you're not producing new content, you're, you're getting your email answered, but you know you may be falling behind on it a bit. Then we'd have this sale, and then it would take us close to two weeks, working 10 to 15 hour days, just to get the sale cleared out and everything done. So now you're three weeks behind on work. So now you're trying to catch up for a week, 
And then by the time you're doing anything new, the new container's landing and you're shipping again. So we got to this big phase where, you know, yeah, we were running a business, we were selling a ton of stuff, but we, we looked at each other and we're like, we're falling behind. We're falling behind on product development, on marketing, and all these things. And we could see some small trends with sales numbers and things going on. So we just knew we needed to fix. And the only thing that we could think of at the time was we'll just have to buy a warehouse and hire temp employees. And him and I were like, oh, man, then we got to manage people. And we got to... And, and it was temporary labor, right? Yeah, so we only needed problem. people for a week right. once every six weeks so right. it's really hard to find a consistent and then you have to train people all the time and it just didn't fit our business model yeah. so we were when we do this you're working 10-15 hours a day together we would just talk and talk and I said you know I, why you must be able to pay somebody to do this you know and we found one company that specialized in minor assembly and they were in Traverse City Michigan uh, John actually just got back from there yesterday he was out talking about our new product line but anyway, we, we went out and called them, and a lot of fulfillment centers like Amazon and, you know, the big ones, they just, they don't want to do any assembly. They're not going to do inspection, and their answers to all of our questions were no, 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 and we called this one company, they're called E-Fulfillment Service in Michigan, Michigan and um, everything we asked them was yes, yes, yes. So we flew out, and they're a great group of people, and they have taken the entire, basically, we, we don't even see the wheels anymore. They go from Taiwan to Michigan. Um, they do. The, we taught them how to do the inspection, how to do the assembly, how to. I mean, they do everything. So and you, it, you created that same trust that you have between yeah, each other. Exactly. With, yeah, with business, our fulfillment right? center, and we know. You know, if there's an issue, it's fixed. It, it, it's really good. So basically, what it did is it freed up that three week every six week cycle of time where now we were able to focus and in doing that I mean the last 15 months of our lives were spent developing our new product line and we've been marketing and the website's been redeveloped and like all of the things that we need to be doing as business owners we were able to do again and it's had a huge impact very cool so that, that's like I, I guess that's like a great um, how Taking that off your shoulders, right, uh, allowed you to start thinking more about the actual inner workings and, 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 and complexities of creating a better wheel. Yeah. yeah. Right? So that I, I've heard something about like algorithms, yeah. about wind <laughs> yeah. tunnels. So, so let, let's, let's get a little geeky here and scientific. Yes. Like what, what, what's this all about? So a little, I, I guess mean, is, that, is it one plus one? Like, what's your formula? No. It's not <laughs> a little, That's it, yeah. yeah. One wheel on the front, one wheel on the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to figure out something like there's something about like a gnaw angle or something. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what is this? I guess a little backstory first. Yeah. One of the things that when we first started this, you hear that companies like Zip and, and were, were spending $500,000 to develop one wheel. Well, when we first started, we released three wheels. And I can guarantee you that we did not have $1.5 million to develop three wheels. So we had, we had to figure out a way, how do we design something that we can prove is fast um, while keeping the cost down? So at the time, most companies were doing most of their R&D in a wind tunnel. So low-speed wind tunnels, there's a few of them in the country. They're very expensive. So the one that we work at is called the A2 Wind Tunnel. It's about $600 an hour. There's one in San Diego that's about $900 an hour. And to sweep one wheel can take 15, 15 minutes. minutes. So if you're looking and trying to study things, it becomes challenging. What these guys were doing is they were taking, they were building these physical prototypes. I mean, they don't have to be a complete wheel. They can be made of wood. They can be made of like they glass can see and see them. Yeah. They can see and see them. Some of them are 40 pounds. They put them in there and they see what it does aerodynamically. And then they would make changes. So these companies would spend weeks in a wind tunnel and the, the cost was just so high that it didn't make sense for us. So when we were in school, we're probably younger than some of these other companies just because our, our thought process was, well, how can we do it from a computer standpoint? So, well, and we had no money, so we, yeah. we didn't have another option. Yeah. You know? right. So we had a friend at the time when we were working in engineering who worked for an engineering firm, and we knew CFD software, which is basically a wind tunnel on a computer, would be a, a very good option for us. And it's just that the software was so expensive that we it was about $60,000 to get one license of it. So a friend of mine that worked for this engineering firm, he had a license of it, and they weren't using it. So 
I was pretty good buddies with him. I told him we were starting a company. He said, if you ever want to use the software, let me know. So I said, I'm going to let you know that I'd like to use the software. So we took, we drafted a number of shapes in 3D, and then we sent them to him, and the computer ran for 28 days, basically, straight to, to produce these shapes and or study these shapes, and we found shapes that were clear winners. Um, so we produced those, and at the time the budget was limited, so it, we knew there was a problem with the way that we were developing it, but we, we were limited. So fast forward, you know, three years, four years after we had started and we started to sit down and redesign the new product line, what we recognized was that there was a problem with the way we believe cycling wheels were being developed. So in aerodynamics, there's no equation to solve for something that's fast, so you can't say, you know, X plus whatever, this is going to be fast. You have to test. So that's why these companies spend so much time in wind tunnels is because they would look at a shape, they would test it, and then they would make a change and they would try to find something that happened. The problem with that is that it's it's very manual. So even if you move into CFD, which we did with our first project product, we had to draft all of these shapes and then you manually make a change. So <clears throat> we said we want to we want to automate that process. We want to make that an intelligent process. The so, testing, the testing, exactly. So we knew that companies would do ten to twelve different shapes, maybe a few more, but we needed to test a lot more. So the first thing we needed to understand was what actually happens when you ride a bike. So if I'm going to design something that's fast for a cyclist, I need to understand what happens to a cyclist when they're on the road. The real environment. The real environment. The, the wind. Yeah. The wind. So. Yeah, sure. We have a, a blind intermission. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. So what we did was, if we needed this data that was that we needed to understand what was happening, we, we built a custom computer. So we ordered this fancy sensor from Germany that was a it's basically an anemometer, so it's a wind sensor. Okay. So what it does is it measures the direction of the wind. So we set it up so that you could measure a yaw angle. What a yaw angle is, is it's the direction that the wind hits the bike. So if you're riding down the road and the wind's hitting you straight in the face, that would be zero degrees of yaw. If you got hit like in your right ear, that would be 90 degrees. So this sensor recorded the wind angle every second and we also had a relative velocity sensor which was up on top. So basically, if you're riding and there's no wind at all, whatever speed you're going, that's your relative velocity. Right. If you're riding 20 miles an hour and you're into a 10 mile an hour headwind, that would mean that your relative velocity would be 30. The 20 plus the 10 is okay. 30. So the reason we took that data is because we needed to understand what values were good and bad. So we, we built this sensor, we put it on the bike, and we rode it over four Ironman courses. We took it to St. George, we took it to the Las Vegas uh, Silverman course, we took it to Oceanside, and we rode it through Kona. Uh, and then we rode it all over the place. We rode it along the coast, mountain rides, drafting, descending, climbing, group rides, just to collect as much data as we could. So we collected 110,000 data points, <clears throat> and then we consolidated that all. We looked at each ride individually, and then we combined all the data to see what it looked like from a big picture. Uh -huh. And we, we weeded out all the bad stuff, all the junk, and then we said, okay, we have this complete understanding of what happens to a cyclist as they ride. So the first... It's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, well, we thought it was pretty cool. Yeah. We made you it. Yeah. So the first five degrees... So between minus five and, and five degrees accounts for about 50% of your time on the bike. So they're much shallower than what we originally thought. Our original wheels were built on the belief that you spent 80% of your time between 10 and 20 degrees. And then by the time you get to about 10 degrees, you've accounted for 80% of your time on the bike. So what we realized we had to do is we had to design cycling wheels that were fast at, at low yaw angles. So it's kind of like this, it's not, it's like a curve distribution. Bell curve, yeah. Like yeah, a bell it's like a bell curve, curve. Yeah. yeah. So we then took all of that information and we put it into a, another CFD package. But this time we used uh, another module that was in the in the in the software that was it's called Optimate. So we put a we built a custom algorithm, a weighting function, basically that took that the data that we had. Um, and we weighted that based on the percentage of time that was spent at those yaw angles. We put it in the software, 
and then we created a baseline. So the baseline wheel shapes were our original models. And the baseline set the aerodynamic drag, the aerodynamic efficiency of the first wheel, but it also set the yaw torque. So a yaw torque means if you're riding down the road and you get hit with the wind, how much does the wheel twist in your in the handlebar? Stability. The stability yeah. of the wheel is really what it is. So you can have a wheel that's really aerodynamic, but if you get hit with the wind and it's like riding a bucking bronco, nobody wants to ride. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a specific algorithm that maintained um, or at least or improved stability, but the main focus of the algorithm was to improve aerodynamic efficiency. So we used the baseline. And the, the software, the way it was designed and the parameters that we gave it, it would test one shape and then it would intelligently make decisions to auto-generate a new rim shape and then it would compare that against the first test and whatever the bad one was, it would throw it out. And then it would move to the next one and then it would continually iterate until it found or solved for the fastest shape within the parameter set that we gave it based on the wind conditions that we collected. So instead of testing 10 to 12 shapes in a wind tunnel, we actually iterated through 500 different rim shapes on and the computer. And each time it changed, it was making an intelligent It was decision. making so it, yeah. When you do it manually, you're like, well, I don't know why I'm making this change, I'm right. just making I'm it guessing, change. Right? You know? I'm guessing, right? I'm guessing. So yeah. the, the interesting thing is, if, if we were to use the same computer that we used with our first design, the processing time would have been four and a half years. So we actually had to we actually had to put this on a supercomputer. So it was a 32 core cluster supercomputer right. that ran for like a thousand hours to actually compute this data. So it worked. Um, it was very fast uh, in the software, but we had to test it in a wind tunnel. I mean, that's kind of your proof. It's you, you still have to go there. So we produced, opened the molds, produced the wheels, took them over to the wind tunnel in November of 2015, and they were screaming fast compared to our old stuff. So in the industry, you're, you'll see normally um, two, three percent gains in product for aerodynamics. Our Flow 60, the front wheel, was a 28% improvement over our last generation. So we ranged anywhere between five and 28% depending on the model. The disc wheels are kind of hard to make big improvement with, improvements with because it's a disc wheel. But all of our wheels were faster than the old generation. So. What we, what we found was that by having this algorithm and this, this ability to search for something, it, it really just, it, it took us from where we were today to some of the fastest stuff. We work with a guy in, uh, out of Texas, he has a company called Best Bike Split, and he is one of the smartest mathematician optimization guys I've ever met. He's, he's brilliant. He works with all, most of the tour teams now. Okay. Um, his big claim to fame was that the Trek team was using some models and algorithms to try and compute how long it would take guys to ride or like predictive models for riding. And, and, so and every what time, they did is they, they would take a, a time trial stage in the tour mm -hmm. and these models would go in based on their FTP and say from here to here hold this many watts, yeah. from there to there hold that many watts. And if they held those numbers, it would optimize their time on the course based on their yeah. athletic ability. Okay. And they, yeah. they were good. So it was extremely personalized. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yeah. And it was good data. <clears throat> the problem was, was every time they had to compute one ride, it took about seven and a half hours for the computer to do it. So this guy was watching the tour, and he was looking at, you know, this, and he said, I think I can, he was a PhD student at the time, he's like, I think I can improve that. Well, his model's more accurate. It takes three seconds to compute it. So, and this guy can, like, if you give this guy your FTP, he'll predict your time within two to three seconds. Of an Iron Man. Of an Iron Man. Yeah. So he's, he's incredibly brilliant. So because of his brilliance, um, he gets most of the data from the new product, uh, any new product that's been produced, and they, they, they run models to help streamline and understand. So we obviously sent him our data. And he's said that our wheels are as fast or faster than anything that currently exists on the market. So the, the algorithm and the, the, the way that we kind of went to, to market has really allowed us to catch up, I guess, in a big way. In a short amount yeah. of time. Do you, do you see in the future, because um, at, at Fuelixer, right, we, we love to offer something that's very personalized yep. yeah. and based off of data and, and powered by algorithms, right? So do you see for your 
for your product offering, um, maybe like honing in on an average user, um, maybe like, I don't know, like what the average weather conditions in their specific, where they're mostly riding, like if I'm riding in Las Vegas throughout the whole year, yep. right? Do you think that that weather pattern has anything to do to how my, a, a wheel yeah. that I should get? We actually looked at that and you know what we found, like you can ride in Kona, you can ride on the coast and ocean side, you can ride in wooded areas, you can ride in a group, in you desert. can ride in the desert, you know, wherever. And the average yaw angles that you see are so close, it doesn't really make sense to, to right. open up an entirely new set of molds and design a new product. And we thought, like when we started this process, we're like, well, maybe we'll have wheels for ocean courses and maybe we'll have wheels for you know right, right, right. inland courses. Right. But it's just, n none of the data supported doing that. Uh -huh. um, so it's, it, we, it's a good question because we went into it thinking that's what we may have to do. Yeah. But it, it, it didn't, <clears throat> what we really find is that we offer different depths in wheels. I mean, we have a, a 30, a 45, a 60, a 90, and a, and a full disc. <clears throat> what you really want to focus on is you want to ride as deep as you can handle. I mean, that's the general rule. Aerodynamics is so important over weight or any other thing that happens with a wheel. I mean, it's like 60 to 1 or more and from an importance to weight, from a ratio. So if you... some Everyone has their own individual... Um, sensitivity to crosswind so I mean I don't really like crosswind much but I ride our 60 wheel millimeter wheels mostly all the time and then again they've been designed to be as stable in wind as possible so um, what you really want to focus on is picking the wheel that works for you the best and the algorithm and everything that we've done has designed that to be fast no matter what wheel you're riding it's just you want to be as comfortable so take a triathlete for example most people look at it on paper and they say your front 90 is the fastest in the disc. So they're like, oh, that's what I want to buy. But we actually sell probably 10 to 1 60s, front 60s versus the front 90s. So the, the question is why? And the reality is, is that a front 90 is a lot of wheel for most people to handle. If you're in the TT bars and you get hit with a gust of wind, a lot of people will come up. Well, you, your body, is the biggest aerodynamic drag on the bike. So if you would have been able to stay in the aero bars on a 60, but you had to come up on the 90, mm -hmm. you're actually losing more time riding the 90. Yeah. So and the cool, like he said, the cool thing with, with the algorithm that we ran, our new 45 mil wheel is faster than our old 90 mil wheel. Mm -hmm. So That's you can, you can, yeah, at half the depth. So you wow. can ride a very shallow wheel that almost anyone can handle in any wind condition and as fast as our old 90, which was still a very fast wheel, yeah. you know? So yeah, yeah. everything's really converging, especially with the lower yaw angles. A 45 to a 60 and 90, the difference in time with knowing the average yaw angles are lower, there's not a huge difference. So, you know, if you're really trying to get the last second, maybe you'll go a bit deeper. But for a lot of guys, that 60 and 45 is, is all, yeah, just don't <laughs> come out of the aero bars. Like, that's the number one thing. Stay in the aero bars, and if, if that means you need a 45, don't worry about the extra few seconds you're going to save in the 60 because you're going to be in the bars faster anyway. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So what, what's been your, your main uh, tool to communicate with your customers or prospects? Because, uh, like, I mean... The web, man. Yeah, web. so what, do they go through your blog? Is it through Instagram? They pop up questions on Facebook? Our, like, are uh, they yeah. communicating with you guys? Our biggest... Our biggest thing has been blogs. So we probably have close to 200 blog articles written now. And we're on that. So almost 250. Now, almost 250, I guess, now. So we're really big on um, just providing good content, good information that people in our industry are interested in. And we're not saying, you don't put a post in your blog saying, come buy our product. Like, because nobody cares, right? So we write articles about um, racing, about wheel performance, wheel selection. Um, the, our whole recent design process, we had a five-part series that explains every step that we did. So, again, we, we try to be as transparent as possible. Um, we write a lot of stuff, too, that just, there's a lot of questions people have, like, well, why is this fast? What, what, what tires are fast? When we went to the wind tunnel in November, we studied 20 different tires. So we just released all of that information. From an aerodynamic perspective, you can see the performance of 20 tires that people... Yeah. The information just doesn't exist. And on top of that, too, we've been really big on forums, like public forums, yeah. um, because that's where a lot of your customers are. And, and, and I think a lot of people that are 
that actually write and contribute to forums, maybe it's a small percentage of the people who are actually reading it, you know? So we've, we've always been very open and honest on forums and try to answer questions and, you know, positive, negative, whatever. If you're there and you're talking about an issue, good or bad, it, it can have a really good image on your company. So I would say forums and blog articles and then obviously, you know, Facebook and social media, yeah. like you just got to be there and be active, but just being a good a nice guy who wants to talk and help people yeah. has really been our approach. Yeah, I mean, on, on, the, on the way coming, uh, you know, riding down here to the coffee shop, uh, we actually have Nelson, he's, you know... He's a customer. He's, he's one, here, of your, yeah. one of your users, <laughs> one of your customers, you know, and, and, yeah. and I, you know, I was listening to how you guys were chatting, and it's good to have that FaceTime, you know, with, yeah. with, the, with the user, get that feedback, you know, uh, yep. find out what his reality is with the wheels and stuff. You know, you it's, know? It's, it's interesting, you, you, when you run a business... And you, when you first start a business, everyone kind of looks at it like, oh, it's, these guys are doing something. When the business starts to work, a lot of times you'll have people that will come in and then try to tell you how to run your business, which I always find interesting. It's kind of like, it's kind of the opposite, you know. And, and one of the things we've had a lot of people say to us is, you need to raise your prices, which we've... But adamant about not adamant doing. about not doing it because that's that was the whole point. We think that you know, engineered, well engineered, you know, affordable aerodynamic cycling wheels that should be affordable. I mean, that's that's the whole point. So if we started the company on that premise and then we raised the price, can't sell out. We're, right? we're just well, we create out. a market, right? Yeah, and then we say we're going to price ourselves out of the market that, that we, we just created. created. Like, what's the point sense. of that? You know, yeah. the other thing I think that. A lot of people have said is, but you need to figure out how to, you know, not make it the John and Chris company. You need to figure out how to make it, you know, you kind of need to step away and let it become a bigger company. And I, I just completely disagree with that. We've outsourced a ton of stuff with this business, but the one thing that we have not outsourced is, is customer service is actually, I mean, if you call the company, you get Chris or I. Mm -hmm. And I... Personally, I, I like that. I like that, that somebody can, that can call and say, hey, this is... I mean, we are. I don't think that anybody cares about your business as much as you do. I mean, they may want to work for the company. They may be great employees. I think they are, but there's just something about that connection with the customer that we have always been 100% wanting. And that prevents challenges. You know, I mean, we're, we're we, how many emails do we answer a day? A lot. Yeah, I mean, we get hundreds of emails all the time. Both of you guys. Yeah, and yeah. it's good. And, but we like that, you know. But I'm saying like. There's a point in any business where growth, you know, as you grow and as you get bigger and as things change, it, managing all of that is challenging. And we're, it is, you know, we're at a is. point right now where we're we're at a size where we're we're growing again, and you know, we've never been in some. You know, you go from a startup, right, as you call it, and and you're like, okay, if we can just sell a hundred wheels, and then you sell eight hundred a day, and you go, oh, okay, well, how do we do this? And it's cool because we're first. First time successful entrepreneurs, so as you come up against roadblocks, it's the first time you're doing it. Yes. Yeah. You know, if we do this again, we'll be like, oh, obviously you do this. And we do a lot of business and marketing presentations for other companies. Like we just did a we did a four hour presentation about a month ago for this this company, and a lot of new entrepreneurs will ask us questions, and it's, the, the answers are so obvious. Right. But it's funny when you're up against a problem for the first time, it can take you months to sort it out. You know. Yeah. But it's part of being an entrepreneur. That's what's one yeah. of the fun things is sorting it out. So it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. F facing facing a challenge is. Oh. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's something that entrepreneurs live for. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, if there's no challenge there, it's like it's boring. Yeah. It's you know. Boring, right? Yeah. It's, it's so, like it's so like boring. I don't know. In cycling, I love climbing hills. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. it's a little it's a little challenging. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. very challenging. Yeah. You haven't mentioned you guys sell 800 in minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah in we minutes because the first time I tried to go ahead and buy a wheel, I was like seconds away. I couldn't buy it. You know, I had to wait till the next ship. Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's an interesting point. We, so when we started the business and we we started sales in 2012, I don't think Kickstarter existed at the time. Um, but we had kind of come up with this idea where we were going to do a, what we call the pre-order. And the reason we did a pre-order is because we had a minimum purchase requirement with our factory right. that we couldn't afford. <laughs> yeah. So we're like, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to figure out how to generate the cash. And we, we self-funded the whole business. We've never taken money for investment or anything like that. And it's, that's hard. I mean, you're, that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Buying a container of cycling wheels is not cheap. 
So we said, well, we'll do this pre-order thing. So our intent was, was that we were going to pre-order the wheels, and then we would have stock. So the, the first order that we did, we sold the 750 or 800 cycling wheels, and um, we brought them in, and we had sold out. So we're like, okay, well, we, ha we have to order another container, so I guess we'll do another pre-order. Well, we did another pre-order, and they sold out in like five minutes. So we're like, that's a problem. <laughs> so we just said, okay, we got to order more and order more. And we've continually done that. And we're, I mean, this Thursday is, Our, we're considering order 25. Um, we don't call them three orders anymore because they get <laughs> a shift. But they've, they've all sold out. Now we've been able to maintain some stock on our Flow 30s, which has been great. Um, we're getting... We're having, we don't necessarily sell out in five minutes every single time. It can be seasonally based, but I think, I believe our new product line that we, this is the first time we're selling a new product line. And we have almost 3,000, 2,500 to 3,000 people on a list that are interested, but we only have a thousand cycling wheels. So will it sell out? I don't know. I mean, our intent is to, is to have stock, um, but it's like anything with, with a company, when you're growing and you're self-funded, you have to take some risk. You have to order more product. Yeah. You don't want a million dollars worth of inventory on the shelf at the end of the year because that's not going to go that's well. That's a quick way to go, back, way to go right? back. Nice so way your balance sheet, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Just a really so tough game of balances, and, and you know we look at each other all the time. I mean, we used to have sales jobs, and we were engineers, and worked for this big Fortune 100 company. And every year, your boss would come in and say, "How much are you going to sell this year?" And I'm like, "I don't know." I mean. I, I, it was just, to me, it was always such a dumb question. It's like you know we know what the market size is, but it's like saying. You basically just lick your finger and put it in the air and figure yeah. out, oh, I'm going to sell this much, you know? And my answer was always, I'm going to sell everything I can, right? Right. And if we focus on just being good to the customers, making good products, making good decisions, you're going to sell everything like you can. You can units of increments, right? Of, yeah. Yeah. And they all just compound over so, time. So one of the hardest things I think that we do is saying, okay, how many wheels do we order? Which, how many of each model do we order? And every time we have the discussion, we laugh. We're like, well, how many are we going to sell? And we go, I don't know. I don't know. But we guess. You know, but, but we get better at guessing. We, um, we, I think we've become pretty good guessers at this point. We, we, norm, like we sell out. We normally don't have a, a specific model that's left or too much of one. Um, but, you know, the new product line is the first time we've released a carbon clincher. So it's full carbon wheel. We still have the aluminum plus carbon wheels. But the big question now is... What percentage is going to be sold carbon clincher? What percentage is going to be sold aluminum carbon? Based on the emails that we've seen, there's a lot of people that talk about carbon clinchers, and there has not been a lot of people that have been talking about the aluminum stuff. Is that because it's new and it's exciting? I don't know. So we've taken a guess at the percentage that we order. We hope we're right. We hope we're right. <laughs> so, but you know, you adjust, you continue to grow, and it's. For sure. But it's the new product things. has been very well received. We have, we've had a website up for about five years. And if you look at our total web traffic over five years, the day that we released the news of our new product line, we had 2% of our total web traffic over five years on that one day. Hmm. So that was a pretty cool, like... That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's cool. It's a great metric. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. So I'm sure, I'm sure you guys have some goals, right, for this year, 2016, to close it out. You got um, Interbike coming up yep. in 2016. I'm yep. sure you guys will be present. Oh, yeah, we're there. Trying to knock over some zip uh, wheels <laughs> in the aisles. <laughs> oh, that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, I mean, so, so, so to, get, to get to these goals, what, what's going to be, what's your main motivator this year? What's, what's um, you know, what's going to drive you? You know, it's interesting you asked that question. I, I think we knew that the, the product line needed to, be, needed to be redeveloped. It was just one of those things that was, I thought it was, I guess it was getting kind of stale. I guess I could say that. No, it was. It was. <laughs> I'll say it. So I think, yeah, <laughs> I'll admit it too. Um, but I think that the whole redesign process and the whole, the time that we took to, to sort of sink back into what we started the company on, you know, to design something again, I think that's sort of the driver for me this year is, is now that we have this new product, I want to see what we can do with it. I believe that it will help us grow. I think, we'll, I think we can increase sales again. And another thing that's always been a driver for us, we, we've always had a thing with our company called Bike for a Kid. So it used to be, we used to have ceramic bearings, so every time we sold a set of ceramic bearing wheels, 
we would donate a bike and a helmet to a less fortunate kid. For 2016, we've discontinued the, the ceramic bearing wheels, so we took a look at what percentage of sales, revenue, the ceramic bearings um, accounted for, and we've actually increased that. So we're saying now all 1% of all sales are donated to our Bike for a Kid program. Um, we've done several Bike for a Kid events, and that has, has grown as well. And we've now worked with, we work with a company called an organization called More Than Sport, which is run by an old ex-pro um, triathlete named Chris Lieto. They're a phenomenal team. They've kind of helped us facilitate some of these events. We actually leave in a couple weeks to go up to St. George for our first event of the year. And when you run one of those events, and you, because you, you know, you get so focused on everything that you're doing, you're ordering parts, you're talking to factories, you're bringing stuff in, you're shipping, you're, you're just, you're designing. But when you go to one of these events and you, you see like, you know, this event we'll do now is 150. So you got 150 kids that come in that don't have the ability to own a bike. Some of them have never been on a bike. And, you, you know, you, we set up these races with the kids where we race around with them and they, you teach them how to ride bikes. And to me, that's, it's, it kind of like refocuses everything. It's, it makes you step away from what you're doing. Okay, this is kind of really what matters. Yeah. You know, it's not... If a container is a week late, does it really matter? No, no we'll sort that out, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's always been for me, and we started that from day one with the company. It's always been a driver for me to. It just motivates you to, I guess, to work and to grow the company because you see what, what when you do have a successful company, what good you can do. So those are, the, I guess, the two things for me this year that would be motivators to, to finish up the year strong. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. All right, man. Is I feel like we're definitely gonna have to. Uh, part two. Catch up, yeah. On part, part two, two? Oh, yeah. yeah. Man, you know, I mean, this yeah. is it. we we have so much to talk about yeah. on, on a business side. You know, on entrepreneurship. Um, you know, your your outreach with the community. Like yeah. that's that's amazing, amazing stuff. Um, so, you know, if I'm a customer, if I'm a user, a fan, uh, don't know about you guys, how can I find you online? Uh, yeah. Know, our, be our best thing is just our website. You know, everything's linked there. So I would say Flow Cycling. So that's F-L-O and then the word cycling.com. There's no W in there. But yeah, so F-L-O cycling.com. Beautiful. Yep. Awesome. Beautiful, man. Well, thanks cool. for having so us, much. Man. Yeah, thanks Appreciate for having us. It's really cool. All right. Really amazing. Yeah. Um, all right, guys. Uh, Pablo Quiroga here, the host for today's uh, episode. You guys will be able to check it out on fuelixer.com later today. And we'll see you next time. Thanks.